Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast. I'm Isabel Barrick, Executive Editor at FT Work and Careers, and joining me today is my colleague Andrew Hill, FT Management Editor. Hello. We're recording this series of the podcast around the theme of how to live and work better in a tech-driven age, and we're talking about new books that offer advice and practical steps towards that dream. And Andrew, we've had some fairly big news this week. Well, we've just launched the 2018 Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award, which is going to be looking for the most compelling and enjoyable business book of 2018. And you can read more about that at ft.com slash book award. Great. And in this last episode of the current series, we're talking to Gillian Medoff, a novelist and full-time management and communications consultant, about her book, This Could Hurt. It's a novel that takes us deep into corporate life in a struggling New York-based consumer research company. And Gillian joins us on the line from the US. Welcome, Gillian. Oh, hi. It's great to have you, and and it's great to talk about a novel at the end of our series. And I was interesting because this is a very definitely a workplace novel where there's a focus on the work being done as well as the people doing it, and that's surprisingly rare. Why do you think writers and readers seem to overlook the office, which is where we spend a huge part of our lives? I think most of office work is fundamentally boring, and it's hard to write a novel about boring events without them being boring. So you have to find the conflict among the people, and that's a that's a weird balancing act, is where do you get the conflict enough to drive the narrative, but also portray what's happening in the office accurately. I think most people who work in offices work there, and they're not, you know, behind closed doors writing novels. And so for me, it took a long time to write this book in terms of my career growth, because I had to understand the office and what happens there enough. I had to understand the business enough to be able to write it in a compelling way and also weave in characters. Were you worried, Gillian, sorry to interrupt, but were you worried that the kind of the fact that we are mostly in offices and we think about work all the time, and then when we pick up a novel we want to escape, might deter people from reading about office life. I mean, did that nag you a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that the publishing industry does is they'll find a shorthand to describe your book. So my book was basically an HR department after the financial crash. Really, no, who is going to want to read that book? I, I I can't imagine anybody getting that and thinking, oh, my God, this is so compelling and also funny. You know, you have to find a way into the book that will compel people to read it. And I think that people have so much familiarity with offices 
that on one hand, you can find shorthand ways to write about office events. But on the other hand, it's a rich subject for novels, but it's very hard to describe them to someone in a way that they'll find interesting. I was wondering why you chose human resources as the sort of scene or the setting, because you could have chosen a bit of operations or an executive suite. Why HR? Why did that strike you as a good place to start? Well, I only chose it because it was the easiest for me and the one that I knew the most. Right. And I thought, you know, I have this habit of when I'm starting a novel, I go with what's familiar, and then a couple of years down the line, I'll change it. But the, the thing about the HR that was so compelling to me, more than anything, was how misunderstood and underestimated the department is to most people in the world. And, I, I hear HR and, people applauding <laughs> silently in the background here. They always want right. to be strategic partners. I think you even use that expression in the uh, in the book, don't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, HR was started years ago as an advocate for employees. And so... Over the years, their goals changed, where they started to align themselves with the goals of the business. And so the goals of the business are traditionally drive revenue, reduce expenses, and stay out of court. So then, you know, as far as human resources being an employee advocate, their goals have shifted a little bit. But employees don't understand what the role of HR is and how sometimes they're not advocating for them as much as they're advocating for the company, you know, and it's a fine line. And so I was really interested in the intersection of the place in the business that holds all the secrets where you have a main character who's suddenly not able to keep herself as buttoned down as she would like, and how that plays out. I mean, it's sort of like the crossroads of the company where all things people happen. And I just found that a really compelling place. Although I was more interested in how these people interacted with each other, and they just happened to be set in HR. And then over the years, as I became more familiar with this particular company and these particular characters, I realized HR was exactly where it had to be. Do you think you should perhaps explain the plot without giving away plot spoilers? Maybe it's best coming from you. Oh, sure. I was looking at an HR department through the lens of the five main characters, the the five senior managers in this department. And they all circle around the chief, who is Rosa Guerrero, who is a woman Coming to the end of her career, she's been a very buttoned-down, very successful woman who is now, her health is starting to decline. And at the same time, the company's health is starting to decline. Well, I mean, it's actually 2009, so, you know, everybody in business is sort of not sure of what's going to happen next. And the company has gone through a series of layoffs because it's after the financial crash. And so the book opens with her having to make some decisions about her own department, who she's going to keep and who she's going to let go. And at the same time, you start to see each of the people in her department, you see their home lives, where they come into the office, and then how their home lives bear on their life in the office. And it becomes a panoramic view of 
how an office functions, but also how their personal lives bear on the way that they act. And so one thing that I really wanted to do, my goal was to create sort of a sundial effect where you see the sweep of a day and you see characters one, two, three, four, five, and then five, four, three, two, one. And I really wanted to show the intersection of work and life, but also from the intersection of humor and tragedy. Yes. And one of the things that does happen is that Rosa suffers a stroke, and you see how this stroke bears on the department and then ultimately the rest of the company. Yes. And each of the characters' lives are changed as a result. I really like the way in which the book looks at that division or artificial division between work and home and often I think with office life we're obeying a sort of rules about uh, the difference between work and home and trying to separate the two and people talk about work-life balance and all the uh, messiness that it entails bringing home to work or work to home and I just wonder whether your personal view is that we should just embrace that kind of messiness or are there some sound reasons for not bringing our authentic selves as one of the characters is finding his authentic <laughs> self are there reasons why we shouldn't bring our authentic self to the office or do you think actually that's far too much like hard work oh i definitely believe in the division of church and state right. i mean you know i feel like it's like we all buy into this concept that we're all on stage for 8 hours a day and there are moments where you sort of cut to the audience and something crazy happens and you have to kind of remember that we're all play acting here and we've bought into this thesis that we're going to get through the day behaving a certain way and at the end work is going to get done and we're all going to move forward in our careers but i think there are moments where as a as an employee i myself have been caught in that intersection of wait this is sort of taking us out of the play. And I really was interested in that particular intersection. And it has to do like where one of the characters is going to the hospital to visit Rosa. And there's kind of like, I mean, it's tragic, but it's also funny, right? Where he's kind of, well, how do I act? Do I bring flowers? Do I sit on the bed? No, I can't sit on the bed, but do I hug her? Like I sort of thought to myself, how do I behave as an employee put in a home situation or a life situation? And that, to me, had never really been explored fictively. You know, we didn't really see that in fiction. And I found that that's where my interest lay. But you go too far, and it's implausible. You don't go far enough, and it's not interesting. Right. So it's trying to find that exact balance. But I absolutely believe I don't need to see people's authentic selves in the, in the office. You know, <laughs> I don't. You know, and I think about that too a lot of times because with technology, social media, it's sort of now integrated itself in some ways. But I get sometimes friend requests on Facebook from clients, and it's like, well, how much of your life do I need to see in pictures? Because do I need to see you and your family on the beach making like a human pyramid? Like, I don't need to know 
certain things about you to perform the work that we do together. Yes. But what are the boundaries? Like, how far do we go? Yes, so I've made some is... hideous, hideous decisions on Facebook of accepting friend requests <laughs> yes, from, from contacts, work contacts. It's probably worse for them than it is for me. But uh... There's a whole new area of etiquette there, but you've just alluded there to your work. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because you've had a very successful career, which is, you know, you still work full time, I believe, as a management and communications consultant. I mean, you have an office job and you're a writer. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners how we, like you, could fit two careers into our already crowded and tech filled lives? If I look at my life and the decisions I've made, it's really been to protect my writing. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I, I describe myself as a writer and I'm a novelist, and that's what I do. And at the same time, my job is just as important because that's where my financial future is. I mean, that's where I make my money, the most of my money. And I think to be able to do both, you have to really focus on what you're doing at the moment that you're doing it. And I have trained myself over the years to exploit the the pockets of time that are available to anyone in corporate life. I mean, it is true that there are very, very busy times. But it is also true that if people didn't go to the doctor or talk to their kids or take long lunches, there'd be a lot of extra time. So I exploit that extra time. And when I'm in the office, I work on my job. And when I'm writing my fiction, I'm writing my fiction. I toggle back and forth, but in big swatches. I don't try to do 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there. I also have cut out a lot of things that I don't want to do anymore. There was, in the beginning of my business career, and also in my writing career, there's a lot of conferences and lunches and and if they're not contributing to the business and the bottom line, I really don't do them anymore. And I don't know whether that's just because I understand that it was a lot of wasted time that didn't pan out into something, or I've just become more discriminating about how much time I'll spend doing something. It's interesting. And how, just from your perspective as someone who goes into a lot of different companies or talks to a lot of different companies, what do you think has been the, I mean, this book set in 2009, what do you think are the biggest changes in corporate life over the last decade or so? I think that there's a little bit more flexibility within companies about how they're allowing their employees to work and where they're allowing them to work. I think you see a lot of the old guard still trying to hold on to. You have to come into the office. I have to see you every day. Otherwise, I don't really believe you're working. Where new generations, there's a, a lot more flexibility. I think Right now, especially in communications, companies are trying to be all things to all people, and they're learning slowly that they have to define themselves and speak to their employees, you know, in more specific terms. For instance, I have a lot of clients over the years that have tried to encompass in their communications diversity, gender, what's going on in the news and make messages be much more broad. But I think that there's a lot more specificity now in terms of how employees are being communicated to. And 
and companies are becoming a little bit more strategic in how they're defining their messages and their brands and, and that kind of thing. So perhaps they have to cut through some of the noise that we're all subjected to these right. days. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah, that's the other thing, too. I guess I'm getting more specific. That, I mean, generally, there's just so much more news and communications and social media, and, and there's so much vying for employees' attention. It's hard to keep focused on the business. You know, I mean, I think that there's so much in our culture and in our politics politics, especially American politics and, and British politics these days, it's very distracting. And I think one of the ways that companies are trying to get their employees to be more engaged is by addressing some of these issues, but also addressing employee niches more. You know, like we're doing much more targeted communications based on gender and age and generational experience and, and stuff like that. Things are more sophisticated, but also there's a little bit more of a familiarity. There's not as much formality. And just to return to the novel, one of the things we've talked about often at the FT, and I know Andrew's written about in his columns, is that reading fiction, perhaps instead of business and management books for managers and senior staff, it seems to have all sorts of benefits. Presumably you buy into this too as a novelist, how would you describe the effects of reading fiction? For does it help you with your with your work, or does it make us better people? Well, I think one of one of the things that the internet has opened up is different cultures. You start to see, you know, how other people around the world live. You know, what it's like in other in other industries, in other companies, and I think the one thing that fiction allows us to do is to take real life and examine that that life that we live through someone else's point of view. And through that, you know, you would ultimately, hopefully, develop empathy, develop insight. I'm a word nerd, right? I mean, my whole life has been about words. And I've read business books. I've looked at them. I, and I find a lot of them very repetitious. I mean, the most intelligent ones are those that can take a large concept that you've thought of, but you never really applied it. Those are the best business books. Fiction can take you out of your own experience into someone else's and explain something to you. I used to think that as a writer, I would have to go out into the world and do research and all that. But, but I actually, through fiction, I bring the world to me and I make sense of it. I found that when we've talked about this and, and I've talked to executives and writers about it, that the whole ability of fiction to show you those other worlds, it, it is playing to things that, back to your discussion about what companies are now trying to do, that to, to ways of thinking about life that we are now trying to encourage in employees and CEOs and others. And they spend a lot of time immersed in memos and when they do choose um, book recommendations, either it's conventional business books, of which I see an awful lot, or it is quite often non-fiction, history and biography, which I suppose is another way of getting into another life. But I kind of like the idea that more executives are going to be able to escape, if you like, and adopt other perspectives through thinking about fiction. But, you know, except in the in the in my case where I'm able to sit down for an hour this afternoon and, and finish your excellent novel, not many people have license to read at work. So it's hard to see how people <laughs> wouldn't see it as a waste of their time. People don't read as much as they used to. I, I, I mean, I think that's just a given. We accept that. 
But I can't imagine not reading fiction. I read it because that's my business. So I read it critically. But when I allow myself just to read for pleasure, it's really transportive and it helps make sense of things that I would not ordinarily either not thought about or not been able to understand. And I think the best fiction is sometimes more detailed and dense than what people traditionally would be willing to spend time doing. I think your novel has also brought out, although going back to our original discussion, the, uh, the, the choice of escaping into office life is a, is a harder one in some respects than saying I'm going to read science fiction in order to broaden my mind. But even here, you've managed to slip in some nice lessons for executives. I quite like, I know you love the footnotes, two that I picked out. One was the useful tip that you have to understand that in business, there's no such thing as off the record. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> for, for your character, Lucy, who says she spent countless afternoons in a post-discussion frenzy trying to recall, recalibrate and recant all the unvarnished truths she'd offered to leadership in the spirit of honesty. <laughs> and I also like your little guide to how to hug corporate style, create a circle with your arms around a colleague's shoulders, lean forward, do not touch torsos, do not touch necks or faces, no body part except upper arms should make contact. <laughs> There's life important, lessons. Important life lessons. But so that brings us neatly onto the, the life affirming bit of our podcast where we're finishing everyone in the series with our recommendations as a sort of antidote to a fraught and rather tech obsessed world. Gillian, is there anything from your wide reading that you could recommend to the listeners? I read a book called Panchinko by Min Jin Lee, and it is about one Korean family and it spans generations. It begins in 1900. And it starts when Korea was annexed under Japan. And it sounds like social study, but it is actually one of the most intimate, moving. It was just such a lovely book. I loved it. Sounds great. Andrew, what are you reading? Well, I've recently read a book that probably most of our listeners will have already read or at least seen the film Brooklyn by Colm Toybin about the life of a young Irish girl who departs across the Atlantic to New York and the way in which she reconciles that life and the love that she finds there with her life and loves in closed, I think we're in the 1950s, aren't we, Ireland, and the choices that she then makes. It's a very beautifully written book. I'd highly recommend if you haven't seen the film or read the book to read the book first. The film is very close to the book. I did it the other way around and slightly regretted it, but both of them are very life-affirming. Oh, and, I, and I've um, been reading a memoir called Turning, by Jessica Lee, which is a memoir about the beneficial effects of wild swimming on one's mental and physical health. That Read has, as a wild swimmer yourself. As a wild swimmer myself. So <laughs> it's sort of slightly reinforcing my own life decisions, but that is affirming. Well, that's it for this series. And my thanks to Gillian Medoff in the United States. Oh, thank you for having me. To Andrew Hill and to our producer, Yanina Conboy. The FT Business Books podcast will be back in the autumn when we'll discuss the books that have been shortlisted for the 2018 FT McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. Thank you for listening. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 